Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Our quote for the day from Fred Hampton, born on this day in 1948. Molly Ivins, it's her birthday too, by the way. But here's Fred Hampton's quote. He said, nothing is more important than stopping fascism because fascism will stop us all. Boy, he was prescient. 
the Revolutionary Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, Chairman Fred Hampton, who was murdered in his bed, as I recall, by uh, Chicago police. The racism that is pouring out of the Republican Party and the people that Donald Trump and these other white bigots and racists who have taken over the Republican Party, they've been part of the Republican Party, I was going to say always, they've been part of the Republican Party since 1965 in a big way. And of course, they've been part of both political parties, arguably forever. But in 65, that was 64 and 65 were the years when the Civil Rights Act in 64, the Voting Rights Act in 65 were signed into law by Lyndon Johnson. And the Democratic Party officially renounced racism, essentially, as its you know, primary shtick, particularly in the South. And Richard Nixon said, cool, you know, and the election of 68 is coming up, but I'm going to be running. We will take those people. And, uh, you know, so the white racists became Republicans in the mid and late 60s. And the Republican Party is certainly living up to this. This is very, very troubling. You know, Ron DeSantis, for example, right, the guy who is going to be running against Andrew Gillum in, in Florida for governor of that state. Andrew Gillum is black. DeSantis is a white Tea Party Republican, apparently a racist, Islamophobe and conspiracy nut. If you take the fact that he was running a Facebook group that is all those things. He resigned uh, yesterday. I'm no longer with that Facebook group. Yeah, right. But Pam Geller still is. He's got 95,000 members. They regularly have posts. This is from Think Progress by Elam Katami. They regularly have posts there slamming the Parkland shooting survivors, disparaging Black Lives Matter activists, comparing both to Hitler. They call them the NFL players who kneel overpaid ball chasers who kneel like ISIS. They've made bigoted statements about Muslims, referring to Islam as a religion of pedophilia, sex, slavery, rape, gangs, and honor killings. One of them, this bizarre anti-Semitic and anti-Islamic post, President Trump eats bacon, just one more reason to elect him in 2020. And somebody replies saying, unlike the last guy, at least you know he isn't a Muslim mole. And then Ron DeSantis and his whole monkey thing, and then talking about his opponent. And then we get this in Iowa. And again, this is something that has been ginned up and cranked up by Fox so-called news, promoting white supremacy and racism across the United States since the 1990s. And, and also by, by you know, Trump and the, all the Trumpettes, which is this story about this young lady, Miss Tibbetts, who was murdered by a fellow who is apparently an illegal immigrant. We haven't defined that yet, or a person here without documentation, or, you know, an illegal immigrant has come to seize the lexicon just like right to work. It's the, you know, one of these right-wing memes. But in any case, a reader in Des Moines, Iowa, to a starting line, a website that's associated with the Des Moines newspaper, got one of these robocalls, recorded this thing. Apparently, it got recorded on their voicemail and sent it into the newspaper. The newspaper has published it under the headline, Neo-Nazi Robocall Hits Iowa on Tibbetts Murder. Kill Them All. And this is the bizarre kind of racialized politics that might have been standard fare in the United States in the 1840s, but really should have no place in this country today. This is the kind of stuff that the Nazis were promoting in the 1930s, talking about Jews. Now they're talking about Hispanics. And this is from that robocall. This is what people were hearing across Iowa. And as far as we can tell, this may well be going national. The body of 20-year-old Molly Tibbetts was found in a cornfield after she was stabbed to death by an 
invader from Mexico. An invader from Mexico. Oh, my God. The brown people are coming. You know, we're not hearing much about invaders from Europe, all right? Here it continues. Biological hybrid of white and his savage Aztec ancestors who also killed the knives during their mass human sacrifices on top of pyramids they didn't build. Some relatives of Maui Tibet. Right, the savage Aztecs who had an advanced civilization. I mean, you, know, you could argue it was more advanced than some European civilizations. And what, they didn't build the pyramids? Oh, well, they couldn't have been smart enough to do that. Must have been space aliens, right? I just I, these guys are nuts. Implying that despite having been murdered by a non-white savage intruder, she would still support the invasion of America by a brown horde, currently at a staggering fifty-eight million. But you know, see, there's that brown horde, and this is the whole. Oh my God, America is going to become majority minority. Wait a minute. White people are the worldwide minority. We're right now a majority minority country. A majority is white, and that's a minority worldwide. We're going to become a majority-majority country, but it's going to be, you know, quite some time. But that doesn't, you know, stop these guys from just panicking. Oh, my God. And, and you know, people, regardless of race, people can hold to the values of the United States. I mean, th th this bizarre idea that because somebody's skin color is different or they came from a different country that they can't, they can't, you know, hold to the, the, the liberal values of the Enlightenment that animated the creation and, and, and the constant progress of the United States is terrible. Anyhow, he continues. Oh, your heart, they are wrong. If after her life has now been brutally stolen from her, she could be brought back to life for just one moment and asked, what do you think now? Molly Tibbetts would say, kill them all. Molly Tibbetts would say, kill them all, right? Oh, yeah, that's what we need to do, kill them all. The fact of the matter is, Molly Tibbetts' family is out there saying, quit trying to politicize the death of our daughter sister. No, they're saying. This is not what Molly Tibbetts would say. And stop saying that, right-wing Republicans. Stop saying that, Fox so-called news. Stop saying that, right-wing hate radio. And, and obviously, stop saying that to these Nazi robocallers in Iowa. It continues. We don't have to kill them all, but we do have to deport them all. The Aztec hybrids, known as mestizos, are low IQ, bottom-feeding savages, and is why the countries they infest are crime-ridden failures. See, this is the exact same language, or very similar language, that was being used against a whole variety of people of color over the years, against Chinese in the 1880s, against African Americans throughout the history of this country. It is vile. It is poison. But he makes the point, we've got to deport them all. And now, I mean, check this out. This story, this is from the Washington Post this morning. The U.S. is denying passports to Americans along the border, throwing their citizenship into question. They tell the story. Uh, this is by uh, Kevin Seif of the Washington Post. His official American birth certificate shows he was delivered by a midwife in Brownsville, Texas. He spent his entire life wearing American uniforms, three years as a private in the Army, then as a cadet in the Border Patrol, and now as a state prison guard. But when Juan Forty applied to renew his U.S. passport, he had a U.S. passport. The government's response floored him, and a letter to the State Department said they didn't believe he was an American citizen. The Trump administration is accusing hundreds, possibly thousands of Hispanics along the border 
of using fraudulent birth certificates since they were babies and is undertaking a widespread crackdown. Cases identified by the Washington Post and interviews with immigration attorneys suggest a dramatic shift in both passport issuance and immigration enforcement. In some cases, passport applicants with official U.S. birth certificates are being jailed in immigration detention centers and entered into deportation proceedings. In others, they are stuck in Mexico. Their passports suddenly revoked when they tried to re-enter the United States. Their crime, they have Hispanic last names and their skin is darker than mine. That's what's going on. This is Trump's America. On top of that, now they're going after people who were not eligible to vote and mistakenly voted, which is probably 50 to 100 people a year in the United States. This is not any kind of effort to swing elections. In fact, the U.S. Attorney's Manual says, by and large, these kinds of cases are people who simply didn't know that if you have a green card, for example, you can't vote. You have to be a fully naturalized citizen. They just didn't know. And so, for example, this story from the Huffington Post today, the headline, Legal U.S. Immigrants, Legal. People who are here with government certification, with papers, face prison and deportation for voting. They tell the story of Denzelo Allen Page. is a 66-year-old Walmart worker in Raleigh. She helped her boyfriend register to vote in 2016. She said he was a legal permanent resident, and she wasn't sure if he was eligible to vote or not. So when they filled out the voting application, she did not check the box saying he was a U.S. citizen. And she said she left the box blank, figuring that North Carolina State Board of Elections and Ethics Enforcement would let her know whether or not he was eligible. She said she had served as a poll worker before. She thought someone would flag the application and send her uh, to a separate table to inquire about her boyfriend's citizenship status. She did this in person at a voting place. And when she asked if her boyfriend could vote, the poll worker said sure and took the form. So she thought everything was okay. On Friday, federal prosecutors announced that she had been indicted for aiding and abetting her boyfriend's false claim of citizenship. The legal U.S. immigrants facing prison, five years in prison for voting. And then on top of this, we've got the prison strike going on in the United States right now. In fact, it's spread to Canada. It's going on in uh, Nova Scotia as well. In the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, 200 detained immigrants joined the nationwide protest. Kevin Rashid Johnson in Waverly, Virginia, writes in The Guardian that slave labor still exists in the United States in 2018. In fact, slavery never ended in this country. Now, a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, that's hyper hyperbole, you know. Are you kidding? Really? I thought that slavery got ended by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Well, no, actually. The 13th Amendment says that slavery can still exist in the United States. You just have to be convicted of a crime. It's not that punishment can exist in the United States. It's not that imprisonment can exist in the United States. It's slavery can exist in the United States. Let me read you the 13th Amendment, which actually says this. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, comma, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So neither slavery nor imprisonment can be a punishment, excuse me, shall exist in the United States except as punishment for a crime. Slavery can be punishment for a crime. And that's exactly what's going on. People are being forced to work in, in slave labor-like conditions in prisons all over the United States, all over the, you know, in, in, and in some in Canada as well. This is something that the Northern European countries have, have almost completely abandoned with an emphasis on rehabilitation. But here in the United States, no.
No, it's longer and longer and longer. And we're seeing these these uh, this prison strike now. Uh, this was, you know, uh, triggered. It's a 19 day strike. We're more or less in the middle of it right now. It was triggered by April's rioting in uh, the Lee Correction Institution in South Carolina, in which seven inmates were killed. Yes, a lot of inmates are being killed. Uh, and for example, just in the last uh, three weeks, just in the last three weeks in Mississippi, 10 inmates have died in their cells. No explanation of why. And of course, you know, the vast majority of these people are people of color. Or uh, Actually, I'm not sure if it's the vast majority, but it's certainly in the neighborhood of half of our prison population. It depends on the state you're in, obviously. But this is what's going on. It's all racism all the time, and Donald Trump thinks, and, and Ron DeSantis and the other racist Republicans think they can coast this stuff to electoral victory. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool, and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now, and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour, and half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that, and, oh, I need to check my email, oh, i got to do this, and and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at Choose Muse. M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. It's Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is toward the very end, and it's a chapter titled Transforming Culture Through Politics. Many think it's just to fund tax cuts and subsidies for the rich, that the multimillionaire CEOs who've taken over almost all senior posts in government are just pigs at the trough. And this is a spectacular but ordinary form of self-serving corruption. It all seems so plausible, and there's even a grain of truth to it. But juicy deals for right-wing government insiders and their friends are just a byproduct of the real and deeper war against democracy. The neoconservatives are perf perfectly happy for us to think that they're just opportunists skirting the edges of legality and morality. But this is far more dangerous than simple government corruption. Indeed, the neoconservatives claim to be anti-government. As a leading spokesman for the neocon agenda, Grover Norquist told National Public Radio's Mara Eliasson in a May 25, 2001 morning edition interview, quote, 
I don't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub, end quote. Without a larger view, the issues of domestic spending, oil, neoconservative power plays in both major parties, the loss of liberties, anti-government rhetoric, and war in the Middle East all seem like separate and unconnected events. They're not. The new conservatives who've seized the Republican Party and who, through the Democratic Leadership Council, are nipping at the heels of the Democratic Party are not our parents' conservatives. Historic conservatives like Barry Goldwater, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower would be appalled, although their philosophical roots go back to Alexander Hamilton, who openly argued during the Constitutional Convention that royalty was the best form of government. The neocons have always been kept to the fringe. Indeed, the Reagan-Bush revolution flew in the face of traditional conservative ideals. As John Stockwell notes in his book, The Praetorian Guard, The U.S. Role in the New World Order, Reagan-Bush were proud of their contempt for their concerns of environmentalists, with Reagan once saying, if you've seen one Redwood, you've seen them all. Their Department of the Interior under James Watt sold off minerals and forests to campaign contributors at fire sale prices, and their EPA in many cases moved from prosecuting corporate polluters to legitimizing and protecting them under the guise of regulation. Although James Madison wrote in 1792 that an important role of government was to promote a strong middle class Quote, by the silent operation of the laws, which, without, with, without violating the rights of property, reduce extreme wealth toward a state of mediocrity and raise extreme indigence toward a state of comfort, end of quote from James Madison. That was not a sentiment shared by those in the Reagan-Bush revolution. Instead, Reagan, Reagan raised taxes on the middle class and working people while cutting taxes by more than 60 percent for the most wealthy in America. At the same time, he bragged that he'd eliminated more than a 1,000 programs for poor people and even proposed that poor school children should be content with ketchup as their daily vegetable. At the same time, the Reagan-Bush administration and later the George W. Bush administration worked hard to roll back the very individual liberties that America's founders had fought and died for. Dwight Eisenhower left office warning Americans about the dangers of the concentration of power resulting from corporations getting into bed with the military. But the Reagan-Bush and W. Bush administrations openly embraced these corporate powers, inviting them into the halls of governance and hungrily sucking at the teat of their campaign contributions. In the past, those promoting what, what is now called the new conservative agenda went by different names. The founders of America knew that for 6,000 years, civilized human beings had been ruled by one of three groups, kings, theocrats, or feudal lords. Kings held power by virtue of the threat of violence and continual warfare. Theocrats and popes held power by the people's fear of a god or gods, and feudal lords by wealth and the power that comes from throwing average people into poverty. The new idea of our founders in 1776 was to throw off all three of these historic tyrannies and replace them with a fourth way, the people being ruled by themselves a government that derived its legitimacy and continuing existence solely from the approval of its citizens. Government of, by, and for we the people, they called it, a constitutional Republican democracy. What we are seeing now in the conservative agenda is nothing less than an attempt to overthrow Republican democracy and replace it with a worldwide feudal state. The last time this happened, the feudalists took over a monarchy in the North America, in December 1600, Queen Elizabeth I chartered the East India Company, ultimately leading to a corporate takeover of the Americas for the colonists that ended with the Boston Tea Party and three years later, the American Revolution. 
The corporate state partnership of the East India Company in the UK went on to then to conquer India, but eventually disintegrated as the British Empire faded and the British government, along with most of Western Europe, embraced somewhat more Jeffersonian forms of democracy. Conservatism raised its head again in the 20th century, revived by Franco, Hitler and Mussolini. The Italian dictator even used the word corporatism to describe it and then later renamed it as fascism, a word defined by the American uh, Heritage Dictionary as, quote, a system of government that exercises a dictatorship of the extreme right, typically through the merging of state and business leadership together with belligerent nationalism. The book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Welcome back. John Harmon here with you. Is racism the card that's going to continue to work for the Republican Party? I, you know, I started to say that's going to work for them, but it's what they've been using since Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. Ronald Reagan, the first speech he gave after he was nominated to be president of the United States by the Republican Party at the Republican National Convention, the first speech he gave was in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the town you know, right down the road from uh, the nearest town to where uh, Cheney, Schwarmer, and Goodman were the three civil rights workers were brutally murdered and their bodies hidden for some time there back in the 1960s. That's where Reagan went to give a speech on states' rights. That's also where Donald Trump Jr. went to give his first speech as the surrogate for his father. He also went to Philadelphia, Mississippi. I mean, this is, this is an old race card that these Republicans have been playing. And it's they've gone from the, the dog whistle days of, with Paul Manafort and Lee Atwater back in the 80s and during the Reagan era when Lee Atwater was saying, well, you can't use the N-word anymore and you can't talk about race. And, you know, we used to talk about forced busing. Everybody knew what we were talking about. And now you can just say tax cuts and everybody gets it. That's going to hurt poor people and black people disproportionately. And so you don't. But now they've said, oh, you know, we don't need to be that subtle. We'll just talk about monkeys. Right. Right. So is this going to work? We'll see. Kevin in Kelseyville, California. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to Sirius XM. Hey, Tom. You're welcome. It's a great show. I enjoy it. I just want to mention that uh, the 13th Amendment is something that I write about online quite a bit. And invariably, somebody will respond back and say, we have to have the slavery clause in the 13th Amendment, because if we don't, then we couldn't force the prisoners to even clean up after themselves. It's ludicrous. And I've never been able to get anybody to respond further than that. Like, you know, if somebody's in prison and you're telling me that we can't make them clean up after themselves without making them a slave, there's a problem that needs to be addressed. It's also a logical fallacy. I mean, you know, if somebody's in prison. And the 13th Amendment, I mean, I would love to go back, if I had a time machine, and go back and talk to the people who wrote this thing. Because it almost looks like they were anticipating Jim Crow, that they were anticipating the disenfranchisement of African Americans. I mean, we only had about a decade of radical Republicans running the show there after the Civil War. And, and then, boom, the backlash came. And, you know, the favorite practice of white people in the South to deal with black people who were asking for their rights or who might even want to run for public office or might want to vote was to put them in jail. Absolutely. And then, you know, run and these work farms, these work camps. I, I just wanted to make one other point regarding this topic, and that is that, well, and maybe two, but kind of rolled into one. And that is that without the slavery clause in the 13th Amendment, we wouldn't have private prisons. The reason we have private prisons is because they are allowed 
to utilize slave labor, they pay their people 25 cents an hour or whatever it is. These people are making products that are sold in the marketplace. If you go to Google and you type in prison-made goods sold in the USA and start reading, it will blow your mind. It's a multi-billion dollar per year industry. And they are not just working in the prisons. They are making products that are sold in the marketplace retail products. Right, for an outrage, for, it has got to be stopped. Yeah, for a wide variety of companies whose names you would recognize. You're absolutely right. Kevin, thank you for the call. That's very, very well said. Steve in Chicago. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Yes, I wanted to make the point that at the same time, the right wing is being more and more overtly racist. They're making this sort of other argument wherein, you know, it's, no, no, it's the Democratic Party that has traditionally been the party of racism. You know, they, they cut out a nice little sliver of the pie historically and leave out that part that you mentioned earlier with regard to the Southern strategy and, you know, the fact that when Democrats abandon their history of racism in terms of their platform and their party, the Republicans are more than willing to pick up those voters. No, it's the Democrats who are the party that oppressed African-Americans. So why in heaven's name are you voting for the Democrats if you're an African-American, if you're Hispanic? Right. You know, but again, it's, it's distortion. That was an argument that might have flown before 1965. You know, there was a lot of truth to it that the Democratic Party, which was founded by Thomas Jefferson, a slaveholder, was a party that historically, through the history of the United States, you know, up, up through and including the, the American Civil War, was a party that defended slavery and was a party that was all in on Jim Crow, uh, although the Republican Party was only anti-Jim Crow, anti-racism, anti-slavery for about 15 years. And, you know, from 18, 1856 until, you know, 1870. And that was the end of it, you know. And then both parties became the parties of, of white supremacy. But in the South, the Democrats still, because of the, the Democratic Party's affiliation with the Confederacy, the Democratic Party was still the racist party in the South up until 65. And, and when LBJ signed the, the Civil Rights Act in 64, he told Bill Moyers, you know, Bill Moyers has told this story on the air many, many times. Uh, he turned to the people around him and he said, you know, or one of them said to LBJ, you sign that legislation and the Democratic Party, our party is going to lose the South for a generation. And LBJ said, if that's the price of doing the right thing, I'm willing to pay it. And it turns out it wasn't oh, a generation. Absolutely. It's been three or four generations now. Oh, and absolutely. And, and when you look at the vote itself, it was not along party line. It was along regional lines. The Southern Republicans and Democrats tended to have voted against the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s all the civil rights legislation that that was introduced, whereas in the North, you had Republicans and Democrats voting for it. So, you know, when you find this kind of distortion out there, you know, that's exactly the kind of disinformation that's being circulated that, you know, that wants to, you know, promote this idea. Yeah, but they're, uh, you know, they're still, they're still promoting it on Fox News. I mean, at least once a week, I'll get a call from somebody, I'll put somebody on the air that wants to talk about racism. And what does he want to talk about? Well, you know, Robert Byrd, who was Hillary Clinton's mentor, was a notorious Klan member. And it's like, yeah, until the 60s, I mean, you know, when he re- right. when he reformed yeah. and, for the last, for and the repented. Last years of his life, he renounced that practice. You know, so, I mean, Donald Trump has yet to apologize for what he did in terms of the, the Central Park Five. But Robert yeah, Byrd yeah, but apologized it's, and went on to champion uh, civil rights. But Robert Byrd, knowing Hillary Clinton, is still literally still a talking point on Fox so-called news and on, on right-wing hate radio. It's bizarre. Steve, thank you for the call. Very, very well said. Tony in Huntsville, Alabama. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind? Tom, how you doing, buddy? Good. What's up? Listen, uh, as a person who did five years in the prison system here in Alabama, oh I can tell you about the slavery thing firsthand. We go out there, we pick tomatoes, 
squash, okra, that stuff ends up in Kroger and Walmart. They pay us 25 cents an hour. They stand in the tower with the long 12-gauge shotgun trained on you while you work. During my tenure work and in prison, I saw two men get shot because you're working on the line and you have to use the bathroom. And if you're new and you think you can go to a tree or something and use the bathroom, they shoot you because you came from in between the imaginary lines that all the old guys know. Wow. But the new guys don't know. And they say, inmate, and everybody drops down. And they just, boom, kill you right on the spot and bury you on the hill. Look, this thing is about money. The racism is going to work. Black people had Obama, so white people got Trump, and they're glad, and they're not going to relinquish the fact that we had Obama. We loved Obama. They loved Trump. It's always worked. It's always going to work. The yeah. problem is the private prison system is the key in Alabama. All they have in Alabama is agriculture and prison, and they want people of color to have so much time. I was watching MSNBC. They were talking about Paul Manafort is going to get eight years. Eight years? Hell, I got a 20 for some dope. Wow. I mean, this man is colluding with Russians, and he might get eight years? Well, not only that, the judge that was the judge in the Manafort case, Judge Ellis, he had previously had a guy come before him who was convicted of a $20 million tax fraud case. Manafort's was only $18 million, and he gave the guy seven months in jail. This is ridiculous. This is the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. This is why this stuff doesn't work, Tom, yeah. because an upscale white man, nothing happens to him. He can do anything in the world. A black man sell a rock, and he's going to get no less than 20 years hard labor. And Jefferson Sessions is the worst man in the world, Tom. He's one of the reasons that the people here in Alabama are suffering, because if you're a person of color, they're going to make sure you get the long haul so that these shareholders and these companies can make lots and lots and lots of money on you long term. We call it going up for parole. We call it going up for denial. Right. Remarkable. Tony, thank you for sharing your story with us. I truly appreciate it. And this is such grim stuff here in the United States. We need to awaken from the horrors of this and reform our penal system, reform our criminal justice system, and fix the racism in this country. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We need to explicitly renounce the racism in this country. Larry in Danbury, Connecticut, watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Good afternoon, Tom. I enjoy your program a number of years now. I, mean, I think we all, well, progressives, agree that the Trump separating the families at the borders was wrong morally. A number of courts, the Ninth Circuit, and a couple of other court decisions came down that overturned it. Right. So my question But there's still over 500 kids who are separated from their parents. Right. Those were court decisions. It was at the Ninth Circuit, and there was, I think there was a, a court in Arizona that also ruled against it? Yeah. Um, okay. So my question to you is this. His executive order was overturned by the courts by judicial review. So I know you're against judicial review, and I called once before about this, but I just want to hear your comments about why, in this case, judicial review good. If, I if, just understood in, from the past that you were against judicial review I think that when board, but not, not yeah, I think that when when the court overturns laws that have been passed by the legislature by both branches of Congress and have been signed by the president, 
When the court overturns those laws, it should do so very carefully, very thoughtfully, and with great deference to what the consequences might be. That's not to say that they shouldn't be able to do that. On the other hand, you know, Congress could then pass a law, and this is Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, Congress could then pass a law saying, well, in fact, we're going to continue doing, you know, and you can't stop us. Congress has that power. They've never exercised it, but they have that power. There are remedies for out-of-control judicial review, and the principal one that has been used is what FDR did in 1937 when he said to the Supreme Court, if you keep knocking down my child labor laws and right to unionize laws, if you keep knocking these things down, I'm going to change the composition of the court. And that's, again, Article 3, Section 2. That, that power is given to, to Congress and to the president. And FDR could have pulled it off. And the court changed as a result of that threat. They literally, there was not a single new person or an old, you know, put on the court or an old person taken off. They just changed their behavior as a result of that threat. And, uh, but FDR was the last president, to the best of my knowledge, to really seriously take on the court. Larry, thanks for the call. A good point, a good point. And, and well... I'm, I'm working on a book on the Supreme Court right now. I'm getting really getting into this. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Bob Nay's book, Sideswiped, Lessons Learned Courtesy of the Hitmen of Capitol Hill. Bob was the only member of Congress. He was a Republican congressman. In fact, he was the guy who invented the phrase freedom fries. That far right, yes. He was the only member of Congress who spoke Farsi, which is the language they speak in Iran. The Iranian government during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, sent a letter to, or delivered a letter to Bob in Farsi, because he spoke Farsi, saying that they were willing to recognize Israel and stop their nuclear program in exchange for recognition by the United States. Bob delivered that to the Bush White House, and within a short time, Bob found himself in a federal prison. And that letter never surfaced, and that rapprochement never happened. It's an amazing story. It's, a, it's too long to read as an excerpt, but it's in the book. It's the end of Bob's political career. Now he's working for Talk Media News. But this is from chapter 17 of his book. It's titled Political Strong Arming. I had a major blowout over the Head Start program with Andy Card, President George W. Bush's chief of staff. The first of the legislation debates centered on Head Start. John Boehner was doing his best to acquire votes to hurt the program. I had supported Head Start for years as an Ohio State Senator and again as a U.S. Congressman. When George Bush became president, however, every issue, including this one, was treated as though, if lost, it would be the end of the world, as if winning were vital to save the presidency. Speaker Hastert became a lapdog for President Bush. Didn't matter whether it was overspending, crushing unions, or ripping the legs out from under Head Start, Hastert acted like the president ran the House instead of the other way around. I found myself under intense pressure to vote against Head Start. I was bombarded by all sides, Tom DeLay, Hastert's staff, and the chairman of the Education Committee, which at the time was John Boehner. I found it amazing that a sitting president would make a do-or-die issue over taking money away from poor children who needed a jump on school, a Head Start. Anyone in the field of education knew that Head Start had a rocky beginning, but it had proven to be statistically and socially a very fine program, and I had always supported it. I had a private hideaway, an office the Speaker gives to leaders and uh, long-term older members of Congress that very few people knew about. Even Brian Walsh, my press secretary, was unaware. On this particular evening, I was in that Capitol hideaway, one floor directly below the chamber. I was sick and tired of being lobbied and bullied on this vote. I had to escape the arm-twisting. I used to say it was 
so bad that you could hear the bones snap on the floor of the house. My private phone in the hideaway was ringing, so I knew that only Ted Van Der Mead of the Speaker's office could have given it out. Chris Kruger, my executive assistant, answered it and signaled me that it was Andy Card, the White House chief of staff. Andy said, we need this head start vote. It's critical to the Bush administration's future. I was stunned at this. The entire future of the Bush administration was predicated on beating up on little unfortunate kids by taking away their Head Start funding. I thought this was idiocy and stupid politics. I said, I have always supported Head Start over my entire career. I don't like this vote and I just cannot help you. Card blew up at me and responded with, let me make this clear. Boehner said you were a vote for us and we are holding you to that. I don't know where Boehner got that from, I said. I can rethink this, but I, but I don't like it, and I'm sure I will not change my mind. Andy then said, you are an effing liar. Only spells out the word. And I said, F you, Andy, and your idiotic administration. And I hung up on him. I went to the floor of the house where Boehner confronted me. I told him, Andy is disrespectful, way out in left field on this. He can kiss my ass, and Boehner continued to strong arm me. They were one vote short. It boiled down to the fact that this vote was so hideous, so wrong, that they simply could not get the votes. One of my best friends in Congress, Steve LaTourette, took a bullet for me on this to move the bill along. He told him to back off on me and he would help through the process in the House, but not necessarily if or when the vote came back from the Senate. Second time Andy Card ran afoul of Congress, he had to confront Congressman Steve LaTourette. Steve was one of the finest members of Congress, very brave in his positions, an independent thinker, good at politics, and no wallflower. He's conservative on some issues, but he cares deep down about working people and how they survive in America. At this writing, Steve has left Congress, frustrated with the lack of acceptance of moderates within the Republican Party. Andy Card decided that he wanted to remove Davis-Bacon, a federal law that requires payment of prevailing wages to workers on public work projects, from the Transportation Appropriation Bill. Don Young was a strong transportation chairman and let La Tourette take the lead on the issue. I dug into Andy's history and found some interesting things. He'd been a Massachusetts state rep. He'd worked for President Bush's father, Bush 41. When Bush 41 lost to Clinton, Andy felt that the transportation bill had done the president no good, and he disliked labor unions, and he disliked unions in general. We all kept up a tough front. Transportation unions lobbyists for the building trades, like Tim James, was very effective and helped the labor Republicans push back. Bush 43, though, kept putting up roadblocks at every step. He simply did not want a transportation bill that might support the unions. John Micah, Transportation Subcommittee Chair during a private Republican caucus meeting, made the best statement of the day. John said, hell, the president doesn't think we need a bill. As he travels in cities by car, they stop all the traffic for his motorcade. He thinks there are no traffic problems. The streets are deserted. We all howled. So anyhow, there's just all these amazing inside stories about how Congress actually works. It's pretty grim. The book Sideswiped by Bob Ney. Welcome back. Let's check in with Bob Nay with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com, Ellen Ratner's charity in, based in South Sudan, and loving what you do, Ellen's new book. Bob is the author of Sideswiped, the book to read if you want to learn how Congress works, how the House of Representatives works, and, and Washington, D.C. in general. Congressman, welcome back to the program. What's going on in the world today? Well, there's a lot of things, but if I could digress from the president for a second... Uh, this is the ninth day of a national strike, and a lot of people may not even know that. Are you talking the prison strike or the school strike? Yes, sir. Okay. The prison strike, and it, it's not getting, I think, a lot of follow-up attention, but there are you know, certain demands being made by uh, inmates across the United States 
And there are protests that are actually going on in about 17 states right now with national demands. And I just wanted to report on this because I do have uh, personal upfront knowledge of this since I spent time in, in the Bush Housing Program, also known as Morgantown Federal Corrections. Um, over there. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of problems. And the one that I really wanted to focus on, too, is there's a group called Unicor, and people are doing labor. And you're paid a little bit more if you work in Unicor in prisons. You might make $40 a month for it. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is the corporations are making, you know, excessive money Billions. off of doing this labor. Yeah. Now, uh, and they're going to point this out, the inmates are. Uh, people will say, well, there's a 22% better chance if you have, you know, rehabilitation in prison or a job such as this that you will, you know, make success on the outside world. And, you know, that may be a, a figure which may not be high, and maybe, you know, we would say, well, 22% is still better than nothing, but there are other things that can be done, including treating mental illness, which is not done in the prisons, and including um, some productive, you know, work training. Uh, and Unicor is not that type of productive work training. And paying an appropriate wage. Well, yes. And once you learn how to operate on that computer, you know it. You know whether you do it again or not. Right. You'll know it. And the problem with Unicor is, for forty dollars a month, that company is making, you know, unbelievable amounts of money. Right. So Bob. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, hopefully, finish your thought, I'm sorry. Well, ho- ho- hopefully this will get some attention with the media and the powers to be in Washington, D.C., because they, they have some very legitimate demands. And, and one other thing, prisoners are tortured with family visits. Let me just say that again, tortured. Uh, I have personally seen people turned away because the prison guard decides they don't like the clothing the person has. Hmm. or they decided they don't have a pair of socks on with their shoes. They are turned away after driving 8, 9, 10, 11 hours to see their loved ones literally turned away. Wow. It happens all the time. You know, the 13th Amendment that uh, ended slavery in the United States didn't actually end slavery in the United States. It specifies that um, if a person is convicted of a crime, they may still be, uh, number one, subject to involuntary uh, uh, servitude, but... Also, they may be subjected to slavery, that slavery under the 13th Amendment is still legal in the United States as long as it's applied to somebody who is convicted of a crime. Um, Is there any kind of a movement to amend the 13th Amendment to take that slavery provision out? Not that I know of, because you're correct. The 13th Amendment, which, quote, abolished slavery, actually wrote slavery into our Constitution, literally. Yes. And, And you're right. They did it. Uh, with involuntary servitude if you've committed a crime. So it actually wrote slavery into the Constitution. Yeah, and the word slavery appears there. Yep. Right. And, so, and also Victoria's Secret, by the way, has used employees. Starbucks have used employees within the... Uh, prison employees? In, um, in H- yes, sir. Yeah, remarkable. Yeah. Bob, what... I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, it's, uh, we can't say it often enough. What else is going on in the world today? The follow-up with a story that you and I did about a week ago... Um, you know, Lindsey Graham, who originally said you will not get rid of Sessions, you could read between the lines a couple of weeks ago where Lindsey Graham was saying, well, 
you know, we would have time for things. Anyway, the president's escalating, still trying to fire Sessions as we speak. And yeah. the Republicans are trying to stop. Oh, and I think he's going to do it. The question is, is he going to do it before or after the November election, the right. congressional elections? Bob Ney, uh, author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Doc. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and your and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Let's check in with Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, democracyatwork.info, and his other uh, website, rdwolf.com, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. You can also tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Great to have you with us. I had two large questions for you, and then, you know, anything you wanted to rant about or talk about today, I'm up for. But the first is we've got on the one side, the classic Republican side, lots and lots of hysteria about the national debt. Even, you know, when Ronald Reagan came into office, the national debt was about $800 billion. It wasn't even $1 trillion. And the Republicans were like, this is going to be the end of the republic. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have the modern monetary theorists who are gaining some purchase in the mindset of American economists who are saying that, you know, well, the national debt is actually savings, by and large, in the private sector. If the federal government doesn't provide a place, a safe place for people to put their savings, then you have a very unstable system, as we saw in the 1830s when Andrew Jackson paid off the national debt and produced the largest and deepest depression in the history of the United States. So what's the real story on the national debt, in your opinion, sir? Well, you know, you're quite right that the Republicans have made a career for many, many decades using, and I use that word intentionally, using the problem of a national debt as an excuse. Uh, They can't say honestly that they want to cut social programs for the mass of people out of an ideological commitment, which I believe is the truth. Sounds much better to be doing something that you can claim is for the good of everybody and not having the government go too deeply into debt 
sounds terribly reasonable and therefore is something that the Republicans and the conservatives in the Democratic Party, too, can wrap themselves up in. So they're doing good things when they are, in fact, cutting government spending on all kinds of social programs that people need. So, yes, it's been a phony issue all along. And so the Keynesians, the liberals in American politics, have usually come back and said, well, yeah, the deficit is a problem for a while, but it's an important problem to have because in the long run, we better spend the money that keeps our society together, that takes care of the people that the private sector neglects or forces to live below the poverty line, et cetera, et cetera. And using government money for that, even if it's borrowed, is a worthwhile purpose and will in the long run be better for the economy than not doing it. Well, and Keynes... We like to, and we like to point to the Great Depression as having been that kind of a situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Keynes was also saying during times of economic slowdown, you raise the national debt to stimulate the economy. During times of rip-roaring prosperity, you pay down the national debt, right? Exactly. My only quarrel, and I understand the, the technical issues of the modern monetary theory, they are quite right. Money is created by banks in the normal course of what they do. Uh, that, by the way, introduces as much instability, that fact, as it resolves. But I think they sometimes kind of go too far, because in fact, there's no way around it. If the government has to pay off massive debts, the way the government is going to have to do with the debts run up since the crash of 2008, it will, in fact, be pressing on people, individuals and businesses to raise the money uh, to pay back those loans. So for me, I always wonder in my mind, why, basically, why is the government borrowing money? And here's the issue that I think people have to come to terms with. The government is right now borrowing at an enormous clip again. But there is no mystery why it is doing that. It has to do with the fact that last December, this Trump Republican government gave business an unbelievable tax cut, thereby depriving the government of an enormous amount of revenue. At the same time, they spent a little bit more because they, they didn't dare not do that in the face of this enormous gift to corporations and wealthy people. And the only reason the government has to borrow is because it gave that enormous tax cut uh, to these wealthy people and to these already richer than ever uh, corporations. If they hadn't have done that, then they wouldn't need to expand the deficit now. And here comes the clincher. Ask yourself the question, from whom is the government going to borrow all of this money that it needs to borrow because it's not taxing corporations and the rich? And the answer to the question is the corporations and the rich. The irony here is that the government is borrowing money from the people who have that money to lend because the same government isn't taxing them anymore. In effect, what the government here did was to say to corporations and the rich, you don't have to pay taxes. Instead, we're going to get the money from you in a different way. We're going to borrow it. We're going to pay you interest for the time that we borrow it. And then X years from now, we're going to give it all back to you. There's no then surprise that corporations and the rich 
love this arrangement, love to talk about it as stabilizing this or that, actually make use of the modern monetary theorists, even though those tend to be more on the left than on the right of our political spectrum, because in effect, running a deficit this way is an enormous gift to corporations and the rich. That's remarkable. I mean, I'm curious what you think about Ellen Brown's suggestion that uh, the Constitution specifically gives Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the right to determine the value of money and to mint coins. And that while the Federal Reserve prints our paper money, the coins in your pocket, the quarters, nickels and dimes are actually Treasury Department. They're actually U.S. government money. And the government gets to say that, you know, that thing that you think is a quarter is worth one quarter of a dollar. 25 cents. They could just as easily say it's worth $5,000 or $50,000. They can assign any value they want to it. And that the federal government could easily mint, uh, say, 10 $1 trillion platinum coins, bring that $10 trillion into being by doing that, and then use those 10, that $10 trillion to, re to redeem debt with the Fed or redeem debt, I guess, with the Treasury Department to pay off $10 trillion of the national debt. And the argument that she made of why this would not be inflationary or destructive to the country is that, for example, in 2008, the uh, Fed created $27 trillion out of thin air and distributed it all over the world to billionaires and rich people. The quantitative easing has been something on the order of 6 or $7 trillion, uh, I believe. I mean, you would know the numbers uh, better than me. But it's been huge. And that these trillions of dollars going into the economy and coming back out of the economy are now, in this modern era, you know, not that large a chunk of money that they're, that they're going to debase the currency. What do you think about that? Or is that just a wild out there theory? No, no, it's not wild at all. It's just it's a recognition of a very simple reality, which is you only have an inflation if there's an imbalance between the amount of money in circulation looking to buy things in relationship to the amount of things that are there uh, looking to be sold. If you manage it properly, you can always control the quantity of money so that it has the relationship to the things people use money to buy that keeps prices of each item roughly stable over periods of time. The problem is, who's going to do that? And it, the only logical thing would be for the government, an entity that at least theoretically represents all of us and what we need as a community, the government ought to do it. But private banks don't want that. They don't want to lose the very lucrative situation they have that they can make money for themselves off, the, off of controlling the monetary system. They don't want to give that over to the government, even though for us as the mass of people, it is literally crazy to allow something so important for all of us as the money supply, the conditions of money in our economy, to be in the hands of people who are not there, entrusted with what's good for all of us, but who are there pursuing their private profit. That's been the critique from day one of the absurd way that this is done. It's as if we didn't have the army in the hands of the, of the government that theoretically re represents us, but had lots of little armies looking to make money off of their arminess rather than serving the public purpose. We are now allowing the public purpose of the money we all rely on to be in the hands of people who tell you honestly when you ask them that their bottom line, their first priority, is the private profit of the bank and the lenders, etc. 
who, who control the money supply. There's a fundamental irrationality before you even get to the issue of the deficit. Yeah. Remarkable stuff. We'll have to we'll have to pick up our conversation about slavery next week or, or down the road. Um, All right. But it's because we're out of time. But Professor Richard Wolf, it's always an honor and a pleasure to talk with you, sir. Thank you. Same thing. Thank you very much. Great having you with us. Uh, you can tweet him at Prof Wolf and the website democracyatwork.info or rdwolf with two Fs dot com. Thomas Friedman, he's published a couple of really, really good pieces recently. I, for a long time, used to make fun of Tom Friedman because of his embrace of neoliberal trade policies and, you know, neoliberalism and austerity generally. And I, I would continue to in that vein. But these now he's talking about the, the very real threat that Donald Trump re- represents to our republic. And I think he's spot on in this. But basically what he wrote is a faux news piece, a news piece that is tongue in cheek news. And it is, shall we say, disheartening. September 3rd, Associated Press is the byline. President Trump stopped his motorcade in Manhattan today, jumped out of his limousine, and shot a man on Fifth Avenue who is shouting anti-Trump epithets. The shooting was recorded by the White House press pool, as well as by dozens of bystanders with cell phones and by security cameras in the area. When asked for his reaction, House Speaker Paul Ryan said, we will need more information than is available at this point. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said through pursed lips that he was not going to comment on every up and down with this president. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes says he already has information indicating that the man whom Trump shot, quote, worked for the Clinton Foundation and may have been a relative of former Hillary Clinton aide Huma Abedin. Fox News did not cover Trump's shooting at the top of its broadcast, which focused instead on the killing of an Iowa woman by an undocumented immigrant. Fox's only reference to the fact that the president shot a man on Fifth Avenue was that, quote, a New York City man died today when he ran right into a bullet fired by the president. Senator Lindsey Graham quipped that, quote, Trump shoots as well as he putts, and that this incident would not cause the South Carolina senator to cancel his coming golf round with the president at his Bedminster, New Jersey course. And it, it continues along these lines. White House spokesperson, spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders told reporters that she was looking the other way when the shooting happened, so she had no comment, adding, I haven't had a chance to discuss it with the president. I'll get back to you if I have something. But the president has stated many times he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it, so he's just keeping a campaign promise. He did nothing wrong. There are no charges against him. And even though I have no comment and he has no comment, we've commented on this extensively already. Uh, Tom Friedman goes on to say, hours later, though, the president tweeted, Actually, some people are saying that a man who looked a lot like Barack Obama did the shooting. I'm not saying that, but some people are. It also could have been somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds who fired that shot. Like Rudy said, truth is not truth unless I say so. End of tweet. And then he's got a quote from Jerry Falwell Jr. You know, a top evangelical leader announced that his movement would be holding a vigil this evening, praying that the president had not stressed himself too much by having to shoot a man on Fifth Avenue. Falwell added this never would have happened if Jeff Sessions were doing his job. And the day ended with Education Secretary Betsy DeVos declaring that the fact that the president could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight, quote, only proves again why we need to arm all our school teachers. Tom Friedman then goes on to talk about, you know, his biggest challenge in writing this was that some people might actually think it's a real news story in The New York Times. And, you know, spot on. I I think a lot of people might think that. Here we have a guy who has bragged about sexually assaulting women. I believe something like 20 women have now come forward and said that he, he sexually assaulted them. It, you know, we're all in arms about Harvey Weinstein. What about Donald Trump? This is a guy who, who has admitted to attempting to conspire 
with a foreign government to flip our election. And, and you know, I mean, essentially brags about it. That's what we've come to. I mean, that's how, how grim this whole thing has gotten. Dan in Orlando, listening on iHeartRadio. Hey, Dan, what's up? Hey, good afternoon. I'm first-time caller, long-time listener to you. Now, first thank you, Dan. First want to thank you for educating me and everybody that listens to you. I just want to say to all your callers out there, we need some help down here in Florida. We're being outspent. We're outspent in the primaries, $90 million to $6 million. And we've already got so many lies, falsehoods, and misrepresentations, along with racism, everything coming into the uh, election down here in Florida, the probably biggest swing state in the country. So we just really need a lot of help. If y'all want to get on andrewkillum.com and just if y'all could phone call for us, or maybe if you could donate a little bit, it would go a long way to help the country and us. There you go. Um, Dan, I'm, I'm pleased to carry that message on your behalf. And thank you for the call and, and for, for making it. andrewkillum.com. Check it out. And thanks so much for being with us. We'll, uh, we'll be back. But uh, also, it's really important. I mean, as we come into this election and as in many states, the window is closing to register to vote. It is so important to make sure that your voter registration is up to date. Democracy is not a spectator sport. It takes all of us. That includes you. So get out there and get active tag. You're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 